Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Machion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hi, it's Brad Lewis from Machion Diagnostics with another podcast in our a series of podcasts on coagulation and thrombotic microangiopathy related topics. Today I wanted to talk about bone marrow transplant related thrombotic microangiopathies. Now, this is something that's reasonably uncommon overall, but becoming much more widely recognized. The first time I personally ran into this issue was uh, about nine years ago uh, when I received a call from a university transplant service who had a patient who had developed refractory thrombocytopenia and would look like a hemolytic anemia post-transplant. And the question was, did I have any thoughts about where to go with this uh, diagnosis? And I had lots of thoughts. And we worked through a number of uh, esoteric uh, infectious causes as well as possible malignant causes, worked autoimmune causes, worked through our entire differential without finding anything. And as a little bit of a Hail Mary, we ultimately did cyto or did next-gen gene sequencing for atypical HUS. Now, it seemed very unlikely, and to all of our surprise, this patient had a well-known pathogenic variant in complement factor H. This patient actually had, as it turns out, atypical HUS of the genetic variety, um, but it was phenotypically mild enough that it had not been triggered previously during their life, but had now been triggered after the tr transplant and responded very well to treatment with eculizumab. But it did raise for me the, an interest in post-bone marrow transplant thrombotic microangiopathies. These microangiopathies are something we've seen uh, typically after renal transplants, in part because uh, occasionally the atypical HUS, which caused the original renal failure, was missed. And it shows up again after the renal transplant is done, unfortunately. Now, similarly, in patients who are having small bowel transplants, uh, Catherine Broom has reported a, up to a 17-20% uh, incidence of thrombotic microangiopathy in that setting, whether that uh, reflects the, the stress of the small bowel transplant itself with necrotic tissue and, and the aggressive immunosuppression, or whether it actually uh, reflects perhaps uh, small bowel infarctions initially due to missed atypical HUS, I think is still a little bit uh, up in the air. We've similarly seen it after cardiac transplants, uh, again, perhaps because the atypical HUS has actually been the etiology of the original cardiomyopathy and was missed. But after a bone marrow transplant, one wouldn't expect any sort of missed atypical HUS, and it's really a different uh, sort of an issue. The presumption has been that it's a little bit of the uh, hammer and a brick phenomena, that is, you have a brick that's sitting around, even if it has small defects in it, the brick is going to do just fine. Come at it with a big enough hammer and any little defects that may be in that brick are going to show up and that brick's going to crack. Um, similarly, in patients who are perfectly well, really, but perhaps have some small dysregulation of their complement regulatory system, perhaps they're predisposed under conditions of uh, extraordinary complement activation to, to then uh, show their, their defect in regulation with complement-mediated endothelial damage and resultant 
uh, atypical HUS-like uh, presentation. Now, why would this happen, happen after bone marrow transplants? Perhaps the real reason ought to be why not? Um, you could imagine that the conditioning regimens themselves, the TBI, um, or the chemotherapies that are used as part of the conditioning uh, could be triggers, and indeed uh, that they do seem to have an association with the risk of TMA, or thrombotic microangiopathy, after the uh, transplant. Now, similarly, GVHD itself may be a, a trigger and has been associated. The use of calcineurin inhibitors uh, for immunosuppression, too, has been associated with uh, thrombotic microangiopathies. A number of the infections that are seen uh, can also do it. HLA mismatching may be associated. Uh, cytokine release, uh, because of the process of the transplant itself, may cause some endothelial activation and damage that may then activate the complement cascade. Um, so it's probably not a surprise that the post-transplant setting would be a place where one with a tendency to, to lose control of their complement cascade might indeed lose control with all of the sequelae in multiple organ systems that you see in that, in that setting. This same situation, though, makes it very difficult to diagnose, just like that initial case that I saw so long ago. Um, patients who are in the immediate post-transplant setting have lots of reasons for, for pathology, both infectious causes of every sort you can imagine, uh, viral, fungal, uh, bacterial, and perhaps even rickettsial, all of which can cause uh, thrombotic microangiopathies uh, uh, in their own right, which, which are not classic AHUS. These patients also have their underlying original primary disease. They're getting drugs that can trigger this, this sort of thing. They often do have GVHD, which certainly can look an awful lot like AHUS. And in fact, uh, some have raised the question of whether perhaps steroid refractory GVHD is just another name for misdiagnosed complement-mediated thrombotic microangiopathy, or what I'm going to call for uh, simplicity's sake, atypical HUS-like thrombotic microangiopathy. Now, so again, not, perhaps not too surprising that this sort of thing shows up in that kind of a setting. How would you recognize atypical HUS? I think part of it, like recognizing atypical HUS or TTP or other uh, rare disorders in any setting, part of it is just being primed to look for it. And we'll talk later about things that might set you up to be even more uh, attentive and watching for this. But it can present with the classic manifestations, with a thrombotic microangiopathy, with thrombocytopenia, elevated LDH, uh, hemolytic anemia marked by schistocytes. It can also show up with less of the hematologic manifestations and more of the end organ damage than pulmonary disease, both with pulmonary, uh, with pleural effusions as well as with intrinsic pulmonary disease, cardiac disease with drop and ejection fraction, both because of pulmonary hypertension. Um, and because of direct cardiac toxicity has been, been seen. Renal disease, especially with proteinuria, commonly with fairly significant proteinuria, and, and then ultimately renal, renal failure in these settings. And CNS disease with confusion uh, and progressive worsening of CNS function can be seen in perhaps 50% of patients presenting with a, a post-transplant TMA. So watching for these uh, disorders and looking at whether the disorders appear to be out of keeping with what one would generally expect from what other, whatever other things are going on uh, make one begin to think about uh, the possibility of a, of a transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy. A number of organizations have come up with diagnostic criteria to 
to try to in, improve the recognition of this uh, problem. Indeed, now it's gone from a rare problem to now in a number of series, perhaps uh, 20 to 30 percent of patients will develop a TMA post-transplant. Not all of those will require therapy for their TMA, although as we'll talk about when we talk a little bit about therapy, it may be that diagnosing these TMAs earlier improves the outcome and that we are perhaps in a routine way dramatically delaying our diagnosis of these TMAs until they finally blossom into the full-blown spectrum and the severity of disease. And by the time they blossomed in that way, it may not be possible to undo the damage. Now, so that earlier diagnosis may indeed down the road turn out to be, to be the key to having successful therapeutic interventions. So again, being aware of the possibility, watching for signs certainly sets it off. When you do suspect it, part of the uh, diagnostic algorithm is just like it is for any other case of atypical HUS or any other TMA. You need to do your due diligence and look for other causes. Is there an infectious cause? Is there a malignant cause? Is there an obvious drug-induced cause? After you've worked through those, you certainly want to look at the COAGs and the, and the Coombs test to make sure there's not an obvious other etiology for the thrombocytopenia or the hemolytic anemia. And then after that, it's the usual actors uh, when you're looking for, for thrombotic microangiopathies. You're going to be looking for the hemolytic anemia, looking at the retic count, which obviously may be very low in this setting, but a falling hemoglobin is really sort of a retic count equivalent. You want to look for schistocytes on the smear. Uh, just a word in passing here. Looking at smears seems to be uh, decreasing in frequency as I travel around. It's not something that's done all the time. Looking at schistocytes in one recent study was incredibly, showed incredible intercenter variability. Uh, even when it was looked at by the hematopathologist for a bone marrow transplant uh, performing uh, institution, quantifying the number of schistocytes or even ascertaining their presence was not easy to do in these uh, various kinds of guidelines for evaluating it. Uh, schistocytes greater than or equal to two to greater than or equal to four are used as a cutoff. Um, many series have found that a schistocyte per high-powered field or so is pretty normal in patients after a bone marrow transplant. Uh, just because of the other stresses that are that are going on. But looking for schistocytes may help. Note that schistocytes aren't always present, certainly not uh, for the first uh, little while and sometimes not at all in some patients with what will ultimately appear to be a TMA. Looking at the LDH for elevation, looking for signs of renal or neurologic uh, sequelae. Again, this may be a, a bit late by the time you find this, but when you do, that should make you begin to think about a TMA, looking at the thrombocytopenia, looking at the drop in hemoglobin, as we mentioned. And in a number of series, looking for a drop in haptoglobin has been helpful. Certainly when you see a drop in haptoglobin, that, that correlates with um, a hemolytic anemia, particularly intravascular hemolytic anemia, as this would be. But note that in a number of series, haptoglobins were not decreased in patients who clearly had an intravascular hemolysis ongoing. And that goes back to one of my pet peeves that you've heard me talk about in other of these podcasts. But haptoglobin is not a great marker for hemolysis because it is an acute phase reactant. Now, it can rise dramatically as part of the acute phase process. And then when it drops as part of the uh, consumption, it may drop down into the normal or no, low normal range and not drop low enough to be a trigger in its own right. So those are the 
kinds of criteria that are used. They're used in different combinations. You can look at the uh, bone marrow transplant clinical trials network criteria, the CTN criteria. The International Working Group has criteria from around 2007 or so. And more recently, Cho has published a, an overall thrombotic microangiopathy scoring system that pretty much takes the CTN scoring system and the IWG scoring system and uh, puts it together um, into a probable TMA score. Uh, this tends to leave out the renal and neurologic uh, consequences as a necessary criteria, trying to pick this up just a, a little bit earlier, perhaps allowing us to make the diagnosis a bit a bit sooner. So that takes you to how to begin to, to suspect that somebody has a TMA. Well, what can you do after that to begin to hone in on the, on the diagnosis? And it's not entirely clear really what you can do that, that's going to make a difference. Uh, suspecting it and perhaps moving on to therapy may be a, a, an approach to, to take. Tests that have been used to help in honing in on the diagnosis is to look at complement markers, to look at uh, soluble C5B9 or soluble MAC complexes. Um, their presence may be a marker of more severe disease and their presence uh, would also push you towards believing that you diagnosed a TMA here. Similarly, a number of people have begun to use cytogenetics Similarly, a number of people have begun to use next-gen gene sequencing as a way of honing in on the diagnosis. I mentioned that in the case I described in the beginning. We were lucky in that case to actually have a clear-cut uh, genetic diagnosis of susceptibility to atypical HUS. There's an interesting or series of interesting articles by Joe Dell suggesting that if you look at patients who develop post-bone marrow transplant TMAs, um, a very large percentage of them will have some genetic defects in their, in their complement regulatory cascade. In one of her series, 65% uh, of patients had variants in the, in the complement system. Now, many of those variants are what we here at Mejian would call equivocal or um, of uncertain significance, variants of unknown significance. Interestingly, what she found in, those, in that same series was that these defects were only found in about 9% of patients post bone marrow transplant who did not develop TMAs, suggesting that it may be a collection of subtle predispositions towards HUS, which don't matter in the real, real world. These defects are generally not felt to be enough to trigger uh, de novo, if you will, atypical HUS in an otherwise fairly normal host. But perhaps they are enough under the stress of a bone marrow transplant like we talked about with the stressors inside the brick. Maybe there's just enough weakness in this complement system so that when the hammer of a transplant comes down on it, it shatters and, and a, a complement-mediated thrombotic microangiopathy takes off. Jodell's made the point that, interestingly, we see more of the transplant-associated uh, TMAs in non-whites than we do in Caucasians, and they, their mortality rate seems to be higher. And Interestingly, we also in that same population see many more of these variants that are of uncertain significance. We often call them high-frequency polymorphisms. They're variants that are seen fairly commonly in the non-Caucasian population, often at increased frequency in those patients who develop atypical HUS outside the transplant setting, but not felt to be, if you will, driver mutations, not felt to be severe enough to cause HUS. And in fact, they occur at such high frequencies that it seems exceedingly unlikely that they would be a cause of a very, very rare disease like atypical HUS. 
And nonetheless, these polymorphisms may slightly predispose to dysregulation of the complement cascade. It may be just what we're looking for. Um, I think at this point, it's not clear that the, the, the that next-gen sequencing plays a role in evaluating, but it's certainly a thought, and it's very often used, and it may be helpful when you're on the fence about whether to move forward with treatment. And remember that here at Meishan, we can get you back this next-gen sequencing in about two working days. So we can get it back to allow real-world responses to this sort of problem. A number of people, Jodell among them, have raised the question of perhaps Patients having bone marrow transplants should be screened genetically for susceptibility to complement-mediated TMAs, screened prior to their transplant so that you would then be more on your toes. You would begin to watch more closely. And perhaps instead of treating people 50 or 60 days out, we, could, we would begin recognizing and treating TMAs at the first sign of TMAs. There was an interesting study recently looking at echocardiography and those patients who developed echocardiographic signs of cardiac damage very early on after the transplant. I believe it was around 7 to 14 days. Uh, those patients had a high risk of developing recognizable transplant-associated TMA down the road. One would raise the question if perhaps that actually was the first sign of their TMA. And if we had known that they had a genetic predisposition, should we, could we perhaps at that point have begun therapy earlier and with a better outcome? Which brings me to the last question, who cares about making this diagnosis? And as of now, we don't have a great therapy. Not surprisingly, a number of people um, have tried using complement uh, blocking agents, eculizumab, uh, to treat these patients. And, and in a couple of fairly small series, um, there's been a very good response rate. Uh, Kraft reports about a 70% response rate to eculizumab. But in most of these series, although there is a response rate, it doesn't appear to impact overall mortality, suggesting either that these patients are uh, having other sorts of issues, and that's why they're having the TMA, or that, that perhaps the treatment is either not the correct treatment, or that it's simply being offered too late. Uh, Defibrotide has been tried in this, in this setting. Phoresis has been tried without much efficacy, as near as I can tell. Um, most people will stop the calcineurin inhibitor that the patient is on. Now, a couple of series have suggested that stopping the calcineurin inhibitor d does not appear to improve outcomes or result in resolution of the TMA. So that may not be the right way to go and carries some risks in, these, in many of these uh, settings since there are other problems, including often GVHD, going on simultaneously. That's really the, the story overall. I think Transplant-associated TMA is a story still in evolution. It's something you're going to want to be thinking about more aggressively. Um, and as we move towards finding a more effective therapy, either by initiating the therapy early or by uh, finding a more effective therapy or combination of therapies that work in this setting, I think it will become ever more important to make this diagnosis up front. As always, if you have questions about a patient or about the use of next-gen sequencing, uh, in these patients, please uh, give me a call. My phone number um, is at the bottom of every lap slip, and you can always call Machion Diagnostics, and they'll put you in touch with me. Thank you very much. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. 
Thank you for listening. And if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to blood, sweat, and smears at machiondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Machion at Twitter at DX. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears.